0: All right, we're back for another episode of the Freewheeling Podcast. I'm your host, Abby Mickey, and I once again have my faithful sidekick slash co-host slash favorite person to chat with, Lauren Rowney. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Abby. That's so sweet of you to say. I'm pretty sure by now, Hannes is sick of, of talking with me, so it's nice to hear that someone likes <laughs> talking with me. Yeah, how's the, uh, how's the coronavirus situation treating you? Um, well, he has gone back to work. He works in construction. So
1: that's brought like a little bit of normalcy back to the household. I'm still sitting home for the moment, but, um, yeah, as we've spoken about before, we were quite lucky in Belgium that we've had the freedom the whole time to still go cycling. And so I'm just keeping busy and actually getting fit again, which has been really nice.
0: That's awesome. We asked everybody last time, to send us your questions so that we can do a QA episode. And we got a ton of questions, some very interesting ones, some ones that are gonna be a little bit tough. Before we start answering said questions, I wanna make a correction on last episode's chat about Velocio and their Unity jersey. At the time, they had actually donated $50,000, which apparently I can't read my own handwriting, not 5,000, 50,000, which is <laughs> pretty impressive. And that was two weeks ago, so now I can only imagine it's be- it's a lot more. I mean, it's just it's awesome that they're doing that. And I wanted to correct myself because I hate getting things wrong. So there you go. Correction made. And I think
1: that the pre-order is done now for Unity, but it will be coming out in summer. So, um, yeah, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, for people who love Velocio or want to get to know the brand more, you can check it out at Velocio.cc. But yeah, the pre-order is now closed, but in the summer, you should be able to get the jersey.
0: It's a beautiful jersey. I Luckily enough, I got one, and I rode it around the other day, and it looked great. I'm a big fan. I've been working really
1: hard to to feel more comfortable in it because I ordered the wrong size. So. (laughs) (laughs) So it's incentive for fitness. I've got winter boobs. We'll say that, so all the fat's gone. So Let's just pretend.
0: <laughs> um, that's a real problem. Yeah, women, you know, you know what we're talking about. I, it all goes like to my uh, butt. My butt is the problem. Well, it also goes to my arms, which is not a nice place. You ever like sit down and think about how that is possible? Yes like here I'm going to sit here and I'm going to eat this pastry and it's going to go straight to my arms. It doesn't seem to happen to
1: men though. Like there's a reason why we call it tuck shop arms in Australia for women. You know, when like you wave at someone and then that, that bit where your tricep is, isn't quite um, (laughs) toned enough and it flaps in the wind.
0: (laughs) Oh man, that's hilarious. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Um. Anyway, so should we get to the questions? We've got so many, so we might as well just dive right in. And I think, well, we've got the same questions in front of us, and I'm loving the first one. Yeah, I I wanted to start out with this one because I think we should dive in um, a little easy. So the first question is, do you belong to Gryffindor, Slytherin, Ravenclaw, or Hufflepuff? Lauren, go.
1: Okay, so I think I would be like Harry, where... The Sorting Hat is pulling me maybe a little bit towards Slytherin because based on a personality test I did, I'm quite mischievous. Didn't realize that. Or well, maybe I do subconsciously. But then <laughs> I would definitely end up in Gryffindor.
0: I, I took a quiz on Pottermore, or it's not Pottermore anymore. I think it they changed the uh, website. It's like Harry Wizarding World of Harry Potter, or I can't remember, but I took a quiz and it said I was in Gryffindor. Which Don't I awesome. Abby,
1: it's like your your own personal website that you've started.
0: I created a website. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tra- take credit for what used to be Pottermore. That website is amazing. You can take so many different quizzes. You can take quizzes like you find out what wand you have, you find out what your patronus is. It's really cool. Well, I know what I'm doing on my Monday now. um the next question we got was wondering about training cycles with athletes having been aiming for tokyo this year will the date shift affect things also will having sat on the trainer for months impact racing in real life now for this question i thought that it would be awesome to get a professional opinion so i have asked benjamin day Ben Day, who is one of the coaches for Mitchelton Scott and also coaches a bunch of the women in the pro peloton, and asked him what he thought. So here's Ben Day.
2: Hi, Abby. Yeah, so the coronavirus has certainly shaken up uh, not just the world, but uh, the cycling world within that as well, and it's been quite a difficult transition for the riders of just going from uh, being very goal-orientated people with uh, clear dates in mind and and a purpose for, for training each day and a race in mind that they're getting ready for to all of a sudden not having anything on the horizon at all that we can really pinpoint down and uh, it's difficult um, on, on the coaching side as well it's been a really complicated period of time um, just trying to figure out uh, a a correct progression cycle from from now until when the racing is and and the reality is that we just don't know when the racing is actually going to to start so um I don't know if you've seen over the weekend uh there was a calendar that was leaked uh I don't know if this is the final calendar of what they're contemplating the UCI contemplating at the moment um, and of course the, the virus is, is really gonna dictate what happens, you know. This is this is bigger than cycling and we all realise and understand that, even though at first we didn't didn't really want to admit that. Uh so it looks like the racing will begin in August and then uh um like just a really dense block of racing in um September, October. And into November as well, so it's going to be a late season. There's going to be a lot of racing in a very short period of time, and it's going to be uh, a completely different type of timing for the the coaches and the athletes and the, and the preparation. Uh, we're so used to having, you know, for example, uh, the classics when the classics happen, the Giro when the Giro happens, the Tour, the Vuelta, the World Championships. Like it's always such a consistent regularity year after year and now all of a sudden we we have a completely um dynamic situation we there aren't any real concrete answers at all yet and so it's just uh something we just have to be very flexible with so you asked about whether um how difficult this has been for the athletes and I think for sure it's uh, it's harder for some than others it's in it just really comes down to some just standard human stuff of like, we have people here in in Spain at the moment who have finally been allowed out after 48 days in quarantine as of yesterday. Uh, people who live alone and that's not an easy situation for anyone, whether it's a, a professional athlete or anyone else in the world as well. When you're uh, confined alone like that, it's, it's a really difficult situation. Um, during that time, we've been using a lot of virtual racing uh, scenarios like uh, Zwift and Ruby and full gas, and uh, we've been really getting into those, and they've been great in order to create some sort of a schedule in the day. And in reality, that's what the focus has been the last six weeks, has just been to uh, mental health, honestly, just uh, creating some sort of structure or some sort of schedule for the riders um has just been good to keep the days flowing as opposed to just sitting there trying to think you know what's next you know what are we doing this for where's the purpose everything about the preparation normally is for that goal as i mentioned earlier and now all of a sudden it's like it's way too soon to be working towards Um, a goal far off in the distance. We just really need to keep things ticking over, look after our mental health and get through this period of time. The Olympics, you know, they were scheduled to to happen in August and have consequently been moved to the following year. Um, Hopefully they can pull that off. Uh, It's a a difficult situation because it's going to... um, remove the opportunity for some people to do the Olympics, which has been, you know, a lifelong goals for for these people. It's going to open up the doors for other athletes who maybe weren't going to be ready for the Olympics. You know, it really does change the timing quite a bit. Um, creates opportunities, but it also really destroys opportunities as well. Um, the cycling is a little bit particular uh on the road at least in that the year-to-year cycle is so intense and there's so many things to focus on there. we don't do a full four-year progression um, for that uh, olympic cycle uh, definitely on the track they do so i think that's going to impact them a lot more uh, so it's definitely a readjustment um you know um I'm sure there's going to be individual scenarios that, you know, are quite sad or other ones where the, those opportunities really open up for them. So just have to be flexible and and go with the flow because the world really is going through a state of change at the moment and that just, you know, this is bigger than us. It's it's bigger than bigger than all of this. What will the virtual racing do for uh well, what will this period of quarantine, what will this this time away from the scene do for the racing once we get there? I actually think there's a lot to be gained from doing so much on the trainer. It's a really um very focused, lots of tension on the on the legs style of training. So whereas the riders might not be doing the twenty five to thirty hour week training weeks. Um, the the training that they are doing, whether it's fifteen to twenty hours or so, there's a lot of muscular tension constantly. the, the quality is almost, I'd have to say, higher than what it is on the road. It's not one hundred percent the same, that's for sure. Um, but it's almost like doing a, a massive strength block. So I'm actually expecting that we're going to find um the pelotons are moving really well out of this. The catch is we all have to get our timing right now right so like if the racing does start in august um we're now talking it's just over three months away so we have plenty of time you know they're already well and truly trained into the season like the they started training back in november the the base and the build preparation was all set. A lot of guys were coming into great form. Uh, when I say guys, I mean guys and girls, of course. Um, a lot of them were in, coming into great form, just a little bit short of their peak, but just when all of this stuff was shut down. So that first layer of, of base and the first few months of the season is still there and is still in the system. Um, so in reality... Once we're able to go back outside again, the focus is going to be on just getting back on top of that volume, um, getting back and, you know, smelling the roses a little bit and getting some, some sunshine too because I think uh, everybody's suffering a little bit mentally at the moment. So it'll be good for them, good for all of us to be able to get outside. So once we start working towards August, Hopefully we can have some racing then. I think it's really important for the sport. But obviously it has to be made with the decision of all of mankind coming in as a priority. So, um, so there's time. I think uh, with such a small focus part of the season, everything condensed into that three-month block. It's going to be super intense. Everybody's going to be relatively fresh going into it. There'll be very minimal athletes with injuries. Uh, there'll be a, a bulk of the peloton who are all focused on the same block of races, just because now everyone is there for just that three months. You know, it's not like the full eight month season, nine month season, where you know you sort of come in and out of your peak a couple of times. Now everybody's going to be focused on. You know that small section there um, and just a little bit of nuance within that so i expect it's going to be pretty tense and um, i think the final thing to throw into that as well is that uh, there's been no chance yet for people to fight for contract season so we're going to come out of this and it's going to be that time of year when um, people want to be noticed and um, who knows what the sport's going to look like next year so i think there will be a little bit of anxiety and uh, perhaps some extra pressure around that as well. So, uh, I think, you know, hopefully overall we're going to just have some racing and I expect it's going to be a super high level and it'll be uh really great to sink our teeth into again.
0: So that's what Ben had to say about it. Lauren, what do you think? Uh, this is definitely something I think I spoke briefly about with, um,
1: perhaps Gracie, Roy, and Nettie. And, like, basically they've just said that if they do make the team, um, it's just like the mindset of shifting goalposts, I guess. Okay, yeah, it's a big goalpost to shift, but with anything in life you have a lot of setbacks. So say you have been training for Tour of Flanders this year and you're a classics rider and that's your race. Like that's what your whole year is based around, whatever else you do. You know, you'd be pleased about but you want to win Flanders. So say you break your collarbone the week before and it's out. That goalpost is moved one year. That's kind of like what's happened with Tokyo in a sense. So I think, um, like Gracie said, athletes are very adaptable and are used to having setbacks. So I think it just comes down to the mentality of it, um, of the rider and having – faith in your coach and just patience um as for the question about sitting on the indoor trainer for months um one thing i think mental toughness that definitely would have improved because anyone who sits on a trainer knows how hard it is like i struggle to do more than an hour and a half and you've got people doing 200 kilometers now so i think that's a testament to how tough people just in general can be Um, And then when you actually get on the road, if you think back to those moments you're sitting on that horrible trainer, it's just going to, you know, doing six, seven hours on the bike will feel like nothing. Um, Also, some athletes I've spoken to have said their FTP has gone up. And I think Ashley Moorman just proved how um, effective doing the trainer for essentially seven, eight weeks, I think it's been. Um, she just broke her own record up rocker So you can check that out on Strava.
0: Yeah. I think that it's because it's a sustained effort. You don't, there's no descending, there's no soft pedaling. You have to go a certain, certain, um, amount of Watts to, you know, keep the trainer moving. Um, it's a lot harder. There's no, there's no breaks. So as far as getting stronger, I think that people on the trainer get a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. And, um, we see that with, with Zwift Academy, all the girls who are in Zwift Academy who make it to the final three, they're crazy strong. And some of the races that I've been watching on Zwift, I mean, Tom's did a, I think the equivalent of like a cat three race the other day, and he was like 20th from last, <laughs> like the people who the people who just sit on the trainer and train on the trainer it's like insane how strong they get and well, that was art to it there's definitely yeah with racing for sure i mean i remember when evelyn stevens first started racing she was still working on wall street and she would just come home from work and sit on the trainer and she was it was one of the reasons she was so strong i mean she was also uh a genetic freak like Mm -hmm. she's she's just really good um but she was never no offense to evelyn stevens i'm pretty sure she doesn't listen to this podcast but she was never a great uh positioner yeah (laughs) (laughs) how do i say this politically (laughs) um she i was once told if you find yourself next to evelyn stevens in the pack you are done so, <laughs> like you're much. too far so, back.
1: The thing is, <laughs> so if you find yourself next to Evie, you're done. She's probably fine because yeah, she she's she can just, just the ride engine exactly. Yeah. She yeah. just yeah. ride away from you. She go up the left side, straight into the wind, past the peloton, back to the front.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. And then but, keep going, and then win. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> she was so so strong, but I think, I mean, maybe part of it was in the beginning, being on the trainer so much. So.
1: Yeah, and I think
0: also coming into sports
1: so late definitely doesn't help with um, bike handling skills and confidence.
0: No, for sure. Which yeah. is a
1: question I think we talk about a bit later as to, um, we'll get to that, basically, um, how it's going to go in the peloton because people haven't been riding outdoors for so long and not riding in bunches.
0: Yes. Um, our next question is a really tough one. With the news that Bigla are having to crowdfund and CCC Live having support being cut, what is the outlook for women's pro- the women's pro to Peloton? Will it be decimated when this is over? Now, I also called upon someone else to help with this one, but before we jump into her answer, we'd like to set the record straight for CCC Live. CCC Live is under different management than the men's CCC team, and they are doing fine. So for the rest of, as far as we know, our, our knowledge, and we haven't talked directly to the director of the team, so we the information we have is from somebody who's very, very close to cycling and would know if anything was going on. Um, Mm -hmm. but CCC live is fine for the rest of 2020 as far as next year. I couldn't even plan tomorrow, let alone know what's going to happen next year to women's cycling. Um, but CCC live for 2020 is doing totally fine and they don't have any, any, um, salary cuts or anything. Now for this question to be answered, I asked Iris Slapindel, who is, has been on the podcast and is just a legend, and she helped found the Cyclist Alliance. So she's very, very close to the sport. I asked her what she thought, and this is what she said.
3: Hey, Abby and Lauren. Um, Well, coming back to your question, I should say, first of all, at the Cyclist Alliance, we haven't had too many riders coming to us uh, because their teams are not able to pay them anymore, except the ones you've probably already mentioned. Um, I think most teams had their budgets sorted for the year. Team budgets of women's team are a fraction of a men's world tour team, so they depend less on a monthly or quarterly payment from sponsors. But I think that doesn't mean they they will all be fine next year and the years after. COVID-19 will have a big impact on the economy, and that's something we're all going to feel. Companies will probably cut on sponsorship and um, sport in general will suffer from that. Women's cycling and women's sport in general is more fragile than the men's because there's less visibility most of the time. I've been reading a lot of not so optimistic articles in the past week on how much of a relapse this will have on women's sport. But on the other hand, I think we should stay optimistic. Women cycling is resilient. We're used to be dealing with small budgets. Teams and riders are flexible and resourceful. Also, women cycling has made huge steps in the last years and more and more companies have discovered the opportunities of this sport. Riders feel and I that's probably um I think they feel that better than their male colleagues that they're very much responsible for their sponsors and their visibility. They're really active on social media, sponsor activities, and also in their local communities. And that's a huge strength, especially right now. But most of all, we hope at the Cyclist Alliance that all stakeholders take this time to think about the opportunities our sport offers and how to create a more sustainable business model together. This is most of all a time not to be concurrents, but colleagues, because everyone is in the same boat, and we should all have the same goals. This is the perfect time to innovate, experiment, and take some real action on plans and ideas everyone have been talking about for years. So, yeah, I, as far as my answer to this question,
0: I, I wish I knew, because... There's just so much uncertainty right now. Having any kind of certainty about the future of the sport would be really nice. But I mean, I think that the only way that we're going to know what women's cycling and men's cycling and cycling in general is going to be like next year is when we have, when we actually are able to start racing again. And I don't think if there's no racing this year, then I could, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of teams went away, but I don't think we'll know at all until, until there's some kind of certainty about anything. And right now we don't even have a calendar for the women yet or mm-hmm. a rough draft of a calendar. So I think it's worth pointing out, um, anyone who's following a lot of
1: the cycling news at the moment, a lot of the commentary is around the Tour de France, right? And a lot of cyclists, people in management are saying we need the tour because our sport depends on it well, women's cycling doesn't have a tour. Thus, we don't depend on it. Another point to make is the fact that a lot of the racing isn't televised. So I think when teams are having meetings with sponsors, the discussion is going to be totally different to what, say, the pro men teams um, are talking about when they're trying to secure a sponsor. Um, Some of the Things I've seen, a lot of women feel, I think Tiffany Cromwell made some great comments about it, that um, it is a different model, and she's not fearful for women's cycling.
0: Yeah, th- those are really, really good points. I mean, for one, it takes a lot less money to have a women's team, so there's a lot less riders that aren't getting paid as much, which we could get into, but I will refrain from going there (laughs) um so as far as how much money a sponsor has to put down it it's a lot less than for a men's team so as far as financially what's going to happen in the future hopefully the the companies who have invested in women's cycling will continue to do so and yeah we don't have the tour de france we don't have the pinnacle race that kind of dictates how the sport is so it it is a better Outlook. If there is no Tour de France, it's a little bit of a better outlook for the women. And the other thing that kind of goes hand in hand with the sponsorship conversation is most since it's not televised, like you said, most of the sponsors who are invested in women's cycling aren't invested in it because of the the publicity that they get. A lot of the sponsors, I think, are invested in it because of their passion for it because they care about it. It's the same as the women who are racing. The women who are racing are not making enough money. Most of them are not making enough money to you know, live comfortably, which we'll get to later, but they're in it because they love racing their bikes.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think from a sponsor's point of view, um, having spoken to many sponsors over the year, they're invested in the people themselves. And I think that's a very very um, important point
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, All right, the next one, another tough one. Favorite place you've ever traveled to? Uh,
1: I was just like gazing at this question and thinking, (laughs) oh, God.
0: Oh, travel, how nice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a really hard question because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with traveling, like there's moments that you remember and you you hold on to certain things that happen in a certain place. For some reason – I always return to Girona, even when I have a holiday, like it's bizarre because I've been there a million times, but always seem to go back there. And I don't know. I think I just love traveling to like, yeah, the Costa Brava, to be honest, Um, because it feels like home as lame as that might sound.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally get that. I didn't even consider Girona in my answer because it still is home, but maybe when it's not anymore, I will feel that way. So where is your place? Um I gotta go with like my my immediate answer would be like anywhere in Ireland. Never been. Um I spent a lot of time there as a kid and then went back a couple years ago with my sister to kind of um like return to the home country. And mm-hmm. I mean my favorite part about the trip, Katie Bug and I I mean, Ireland is beautiful. It's it was so green and we happened to not get rained on a ton and it was just an awesome trip. But my sister and I are very, very different and we fought the entire time. But every single day at like two o'clock, we would sit down for tea and scones in some like tiny little tea shop somewhere and it, and both read our books and it would be like this reprieve from fighting. Mm-hmm.
1: That's adorable.
0: It was awesome. It was like <laughs> just, <a> re- <laughs> just like a really awesome the other place that hit my brain when i was thinking adelaide i loved adelaide when i was there like oh yeah it's a wonderful place the riding in the adelaide hills was amazing and all the coffee shops were really cool like you know you do uh tour down under and then you have a week there or like 10 days that you're just like hanging out in adelaide while you wait for cadells race and the housing situation was totally great I mean, we had rooms to ourselves. Well, how often does that happen? Never. And <laughs> it was hot. But other than that, I mean, it was a really awesome time. I liked Adelaide a lot.
1: Mm, I think to under, um is my favorite week of the year.
0: Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. I mean, being an Australian, it's, you, you get like an extra bump in um, morale. Yeah, I agree. By that. racing in your home country.
1: Yeah. Yep. Because I felt the
0: same about Tour of California. It was like a special event.
1: Yeah. That we hope one day we'll come back.
0: Yes. Yeah. Most definitely. Um, I'm gonna amend this question so it includes both of us. Have has your dog woken you up by barfing on you yet? My answer is yes. <laughs> love to know who asked this question uh no but frankie
1: often farts in my face
0: <laughs> does frankie ever fart and wake wake himself up Yes. <laughs> as he did that last night she was like asleep next to me and she farted and and barked she was like, what was that? Uh, it was really funny uh, like we were
1: saying, what would life be without dogs?
0: Oh, man, it would be sad. It would be sad. <laughs> um, favorite podcast? Other than, Other than freewheeling, I'd
1: have yeah. to say I do love the Rich Roll podcast. Like him himself I can find a bit annoying at times if that's the word, but I love the guests that he gets on his podcast. I'm always learning something new.
0: Uh, My favorite podcast is the Binge Mode podcast from The Ringer, and specifically Binge Mode Harry Potter, which I can re-listen to over and over and over again. (laughs) What what do they discuss? They literally break down... They start with (laughs) book one, and they have an episode on chapters one through five, and then an episode on chapters six through ten, and so forth. And they go through all of book 1 and then they do the first movie and then all of book 2 and then the second movie and then all of book 3 etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's months and months worth of amazing content but what i love about it is that they go into such detail and you find out all this stuff that you like wouldn't necessarily pick up i've read harry potter more times than i can count i've listened to jim dales audiobook which is I fall asleep to it every night like that's how much I love it I when I go to sleep I just turn on like a random Harry Potter book that's Jim Dale speaking and I fall asleep and have lovely dreams um and even after all of that I listened to Benjamin Harry Potter and I found out I like learned things about <laughs> learned Harry it. Potter it was awesome. about Harry Potter yeah got life no but the two go hand in hand don't they They do. You learn a lot of lessons in Harry Potter, that's for sure. Um, Favorite non-cycling or cycling-related sports book?
1: um, Open by Andre Agassi. What's it about? Um, Well, Agassi, as you know, was a very, very talented tennis player, but he hated the sport. So it's a book about, um, yeah, basically he struggles with it, like doing something that you're so good at, but you just absolutely hate. And then, um, uh, what was the famous tennis player he was married to? Steffi Graf, I think. Um, and just, you know, their relationship and how it evolved and everything. And it's a beautiful book. Um, and I think I learned a lot from it when, um, I was starting out at like an elite level.
0: Oh, add it to my list. My ever-growing list of books that I should read. It's a goodie. Uh, My favorite is My Marathon by Frank Shorter. Um, Frank Shorter, he's actually a buddy of my dad's. He taught my dad how to run, which is pretty cool. Well, my dad knew how to run already, but like gave him tips. He's the father of American distance running, or known as. Mm -hmm. And he won the Olympic marathon in 1972, and then placed second in 1976. But... There was a bunch of controversy about the guy who won about if he was doping or not. And afterwards Frank helped found Usada, the US anti-doping agency. So oh, I didn't know that. Cool story. Yeah. And it's all about his build up to the marathon and um and his childhood and stuff like that. It's a really powerful book. I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. I like running books more than cycling books.
1: yeah i've read a few running books and i also like i went through this phase where i was reading as many books as i could about iron men because i found that sport fascinating so actually chrissy wellington's book was brilliant
0: yeah i cycling books i honestly like i've read a couple of them but at a certain point i had to not read cycling books because it was it was too much of my life was dominated by cycling and i needed something else to not something else to think about and I understand that. <laughs> um, what is the most ridiculous reason you missed a flight?
1: Because my Swan Year drove way too slow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, one time I was supposed to be going to Turingen. And I was like out on a bike ride, and it was everything was great. And I got home, and it was in Spain. And I didn't have back then, I didn't have a Spanish phone number yet. So I got home and I logged onto the internet, and I had like a billion text messages because I had thought that my flight was the next day, but it was actually that day. No, <laughs> and my director was so mad. <laughs> And they thought I'd, like, died because I was, like, all by myself in Spain and, like, no one could get a hold of me. And they were, like, she's dead somewhere. And I was, like, out on this, like, nice six-hour bike ride by myself in the hills. And uh, and the- and no one could get a hold of Tom's to figure out if he knew where I was. And finally, they were just, like, whatever. And they left the airport. And I had to buy my own ticket to Turingen. No. And hey. then... Beg the Swanyard to please come pick me up because it wasn't close, to, like the airport where I flew, where the, the everyone flew into wasn't close to the race hotel at all, and uh, and then promptly got there, <laughs> and I think that I got time cut stage two. Oh no! So that was fun,
1: <laughs> memorable experience of tour again.
0: <laughs> yeah, although to be fair, I had like a really, really, really horrendous concussion and it was like prior to well not like prior to people caring about concussions it was like people hadn't I don't know no one seemed to really care that I had a really bad concussion or like check up on me and like what notice. year was this so it was 2016 so I was racing I had just done um the oboe and it, what was that well, I can't remember what it was called back then, Ovo Energy Tour, but I think it was something different that year. And on stage, like three or something, we were going down a descent, and Iris took me out, and I sat up. On the, I, like, skidded across the entire road, and I sat up. And my mechanic ran up to me and was like, do you need a wheel, do you need a wheel? And I was like, I need a helmet. And the... <laughs> doctor the team like the race doc was leaning out the side of the car like she has to go to the hospital she has to go to the hospital because he'd seen the crash and saw how hard I hit my head yeah and then they had me race Turing again like it was like two weeks later but I didn't take the recovery seriously at all I was trying to train through it and I was getting these horrible headaches and I was super dizzy all the time and I just was like Mm. really really depressed and it was it was so bad and if anyone had actually like cared to notice I shouldn't have been on my bike at all for a really long time after that
1: but I hope now I mean this is like a few years ago but people are more aware of it because I know when I started out racing um it wasn't until Ina had her terrible crash in 2013 that it was I really realized how bad concussions were yeah um and there's been so many of my friends that have had concussions and even some that their personality has completely changed
0: yeah that's that's a thing that ha- I've had two concussions in my life, and one of them, my mom swears that I was a completely different person for a year mm. um, because it was so bad and then this was my this was my second or third one that this happened and there was one day I went from Um, Britain to Latvia um, because Tom's sister was getting married and Tom's was trying to teach me this card game. It was like a kid's card game and every single round he'd have to tell me the rules again and he was getting so frustrated because he kept having to tell me the rules and I just could not understand. But we didn't have any kind of way to test if I had a concussion. There was like an app that we used as a team to track. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't work at all and I just remember sitting on the trainer I was the coach I had at the time was like oh you just have to just ride and get like your blood moving so Tom's wouldn't let me go ride on the road so I just like would sit on the trainer in the yard in Latvia and spin and I would just get these horrendous headaches yeah it was terrible
1: yeah concussions like You know, if you break a bone like your collarbone or anything else, there's like a time on it, right? They tell you in six weeks you can go back on your bike. But with concussions, it's so varied that I think caution is always the best way. Like until you feel 100%, don't do anything. And I'm seeing it more and more. I think there is a lot more care and knowledge. Um, and definitely the bigger teams are, are definitely taking it more serious. It's just perhaps some of the smaller teams, um, that are still a bit backwards, like some of those Italian ones, um, that might not still recognize it. And the kind of like of the mentality, just put the rider back on the bike and get
0: going. Yeah. I think it's definitely more, hopefully at some point in the future, we'll have a better way of testing for it. Yeah. But I think people are definitely taking it more seriously. It was only a year later that Tom's crashed into her, California. If you didn't see it, don't Google it. It's horrible. <laughs> Ugh, I think I was there with you. Yes, I was. 2017.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that was when you were there for Box Women and I was racing. I had just finished racing. Yeah. But yeah, that was when he got that concussion. I mean, it was obviously a lot more obvious that he had a concussion because there was footage of his crash and the aftermath. But they took that really, really seriously. We and got so off on tangent. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> from <laughs> missing a flight to concussions. Um <laughs> if you could pick a superpower, what would it be? Uh as a kid I always wanted to fly. Um that's a good one. So
1: I mean, there's so many superpowers, and I could geek out over all of them because I love Marvel and DC. But I'm just gonna go with the ability to fly because I think it'd be kind of cool. I I can get pissed off quite regularly, and to like just run out of your house and then
0: just like Superman out of here would be quite quite fun. <laughs> um, right now, I would say teleportation would be great. I'd love yes. to see Tom's. <laughs> if you had like a port key. Yeah. Um, but usually on any, in any other time with any other climate, world climate, I would really love to like, be like Raven and just like change your appearance. I think it'd be kind of cool to be like, I wonder what my hair would look like, like this. And then just like (laughs) blink and have your hair be like a completely different style. I think that'd be pretty cool. You could impersonate people. Yeah. It'd be quite handy. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could. That's creepy. I'm not going to finish that sentence. I <laughs> could look like Taylor Swift, but. <laughs> um, if you could go on a bike ride with any celebrity, alive or dead, who would it be and why?
1: <gasps> These questions. This
0: was a really hard one.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, I wish I'd read this. Um, <laughs> any celebrity?
0: Yeah. Do you want me to go? I was thinking about it all last night. Okay, you go. All right, so obviously, off the bat, I want to say Taylor Swift because I just would love to meet her and and have her realize that we're the same and then become friends. <laughs> but I don't think I'd want to go on a bike ride with her because I don't know how often I've gone on a bike ride with someone and walked away being like, oh my gosh, they're my new best friend. Like I think I would like to like be at a slumber party with Taylor Swift and then like... Mm become best friends that way so actually the one celebrity that I would like to go on a bike ride with is Ian McKellen who played Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings because he has this way of talking that is just magical to listen to and I feel like the guy's got so many amazing stories that I could just sit on a bike next to him for hours and hours and hours and have him talk to me and it would be like where has the time gone? So that's my choice. Ian McKellen.
1: Isn't he Dumbledore as well?
0: No, but that would have been a really good call. The guy they have playing Dumbledore in the movies three on? Mm-mm. Not a fan. No. Okay. But did he play in the first two? No, that actor died after the second movie. Oh, Ooh. <laughs> And that's why they switched Dumbledores. Okay. All right. Because yeah. I was like making the
1: connection as to why maybe you would have gone with that decision i did think you were gonna say harry potter but um uh
0: he's um he's magneto in the original x-men movies oh yeah yeah i love him yeah and then gandalf in the lord of the rings movies and he's been in a bunch more stuff like when cats when cats was Not my favorite movie I've ever seen, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, I really, really wanted to like it, having loved the original Broadway musical. But the movie fell short um, of expectations, which were already quite low. But when Ian McKellen did his scene, because he's a theater guy, he does movies and stuff, but he's, he's trained in theater and original, like, theater theater like nerd theater and when he did his scene in Cats it was I was in tears because he was so good like he's just so captivating and he you could tell in that movie you could tell who the theater actors were versus who the actors were and like Mm -hmm. Jason Derulo sorry no no offense to Taylor but I I couldn't I couldn't with her in that movie All of your best friends make mistakes, man. And her biggest mistake was (laughs) cats. But even even Ian McKellen, like in Cats, was astonishing. So I just think he'd be he would just have such amazing stories. Like I could, I bet you could just sit next to him and listen to him tell stories about being on the set of Lord of the Rings for for hours. Mm, It
1: would make a six hour bike ride go past pretty quickly. Exactly. Um, I'm just going to go with Hugh Jackman because I love him and I think <laughs> I he's amazing.
0: Sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he's a really diverse actor in my opinion. He's Australian and I saw him in The Boy From Oz. Again, he's fantastic in theatre. Um, and I got to briefly touch his hand, so it would be
0: really nice to sweat next to him. <laughs> Man, we still have so many questions to go. We might have to make this into a two-parter. Okay. Okay. Do you think Zwift and indoor training will mean that the pros are ready for racing, or is there no substitute for miles outside? Now, for this question, I have called upon someone who is now very, very knowledgeable about Zwift and training, and that is Tom's. So let's hear what Tom's has to say.
4: I think that because of the indoor training platforms, but actually more so because of the time from now when a lot of people in europe are able to ride outside again so early may so the first race there's a lot of time still so i think that uh yeah the teams and the riders are going to be ready to race because the restrictions are being lifted day by day slowly slowly um but there's still yeah more than two months till we race so i think that or till we like race big races so i think that by then even if you had to spend 50 days inside you'll be totally fine
0: so I thought he would be kind of a good person to ask because in the beginning I was asking him, this is an interesting social experiment when we thought that he'd be able to keep training outside in Spain and everyone in Italy was on the trainer. I was like, it'll be interesting to see when we come out of this, who's stronger, the Italians or the people who are living in Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was like, oh, the Italians for sure. And now he's kind of switched his opinion a little bit. But we kind of already talked about it. Like you get so strong riding the trainer mentally and physically. Mm-hmm,
1: exactly. And I think I saw Tom's on the bike breaks ride, riding a Tron bike. Is that
0: correct? Yeah. He... Yeah. He got the, he's up to the Tron bike level.
1: Yeah. Which means that he's seriously been swifting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like 29 hour weeks. Wow. Yes. That's all. I um, wow. Wow. <laughs> Love to hear your thoughts on the current support level and pressure upon riders for losing weight to an unhealthy degree. Is it something riders can talk about better now, or is it still taboo? Now, for this one, we also decided to reach out to the pros because I think that this is a topic that's changing so rapidly, and having been out of the sport now for multiple years for you and one year for me, and and actually when I was still racing on Rally, Rally was like, really really unique in that they it's the weight isn't really a thing that rally talked about ever like the team as a team we didn't it wasn't like a topic of conversation amongst the riders um but we wanted to talk to somebody who might know a little bit better so lauren you talked to someone and she wants to remain anonymous so you're just gonna read her response
1: yeah okay so Let's start off. Um, so I asked this writer this question, and she replied with, it's an enormous topic to discuss, but yet the knowledge and the openness is so, so touchy. As you know, the edge that athletes balance on is so small, and a small comment, positive or negative, on body image, weight, power to weight, diet, nutrition, food portions, can snowball into a disordered eating into disordered eating, or a more serious eating disorder. It's not often talked about in a supportive way. People are terrified to talk about it, in my opinion. Every single endurance athlete has experienced thoughts associated with eating disorders. Whether or not they have acted on these thoughts, or managed to redirect their thought patterns to a more positive relationship with their body image and food, that's a whole other question. From my personal experience in being super open and honest, always talking about my feelings and emotions, I've never met a fellow cyclist who doesn't resonate with those dark thoughts in some way. The language that we, as riders, coaches, partners, friends, family, and supportive people around anyone who is competitive in endurance sports, or even just anyone for that matter, is very important. It can have a huge impact, positive or negative, on those around us. And while that may not be our responsibility, it is worth thinking twice about what we say and the language we are using. You don't have to directly say, lose weight to someone for them to get the bug in their head and begin to steer down that dark pathway. But as you said, and this trumps anything and everything anybody else will ever say to any of us, the most powerful thing any of us can understand is the power of our own mind. What people say to us is one thing, our reaction is solely our own. In some instances, what someone says to us can be hurtful and de- detrimental to our mental health and, therefore, physical health. But if we are in the right place of peace and strength, self-confidence and self-worth will shine through the, and bury the shit talk from an outsider. There are so, so many factors. Education, I believe, is a big one. Knowledge is power. The messed up thing is when it's a young person who is just so green and new to the sport that hasn't grasped enough experience to understand the world they're entering into. they get stuck doing what everyone else is doing or comparing their young body to an older one. Uh, and she's put in brackets, typically a more naturally lean um, person. So trying to take shortcuts to make it to the top quicker and so on and so on. It's an absolute minefield. But in a direct response to that question, can riders talk about it? I would say from personal experience, I can only talk openly and freely with one other rider. And even then, we have to stop ourselves from spiring into obsession. We just put a lid on it. So maybe the answer is actually no. For me, it's not something people are mentally comfortable to talk about or to receive information about.
0: Thanks so much for getting that because I, I wouldn't have known how to answer that. My um, my automatic answer answer would be no. We can't mm-hmm. talk about it unless you talk about it with your coach or a sports psych. We tried I... to one time I was on a team and we tried to have a rule where you weren't allowed to talk about calories, weight, anything like that. And it, it just, it's not possible. <laughs> You'd go on a coffee ride and someone would make a joke and that joke like would resonate. So
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly yeah. what this writer was saying. And I think it, it goes so much deeper as well. It's it's securing contracts and things like that. Um, it's a discussion Molly Weaver and I actually had that now that we're retired. And I think I've mentioned this to you. It's like you're free now to say whatever the hell you want. And, um, you know, when you're writing, you don't want people to know everything that's going on behind the scenes. And, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. I remember I – Said something. I came. I said I did an Instagram post last year about it when I was still racing, and I got a ton of people who reached out and said thanks for saying something, and a couple people who wanted me to talk to younger riders about it because they could tell that there was this this one young girl who was really struggling with it and and had really gone to an unhealthy place, and my reaction to that was like, no. I, as much as I would love to talk to, um, young girls about knowing about being confident in themselves and going into the sport with a better mindset and not getting caught up in that world of losing weight and counting calories and all that. It's kind of something that I feel like I had to learn on my own. And I had a friend who was really, really struggling it when she with it when she was trying to race and ended up breaking her pelvis and then couldn't recover because she was too unhealthy. And I had tried to talk to her about it prior to her breaking her pelvis and it didn't do anything except ruin our friendship.
1: Yeah, yeah, because and- they feel, when you're in that fragile state of mind, you feel like almost being attacked. So you can't even see it as someone trying to help you. Um and it's, it's, it's a hundred percent right until you're ready to get help. And it's with anything. It's like with addiction until you're ready to receive the help that you need. You're not going to see that you have a problem. And like for me with being bulimic for a long time, I knew it was wrong and I knew it had to stop, but it, it just, it wasn't until I got to that breaking point where I woke up one morning and I couldn't physically get on my bike anymore. And my mum. You know, she got up and usually I was already out the door gone an hour before her. And she was like, what are you doing here? You're meant to be out training. I just said, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't do it. And I just explained everything to her. And she said, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And we're going to get you the help. And then that was the start. But until that point, she had no idea what was going on and no one knew. And I wanted to keep it that way.
0: Yeah. I I remember when I started being bulimic, I went from anorexic to then I co- was, like, binging because I couldn't stop. And actually, my coach made a joke about it. Like, oh, I hope you're keeping your food down. She, like, made a joke about it. And I was like, oh. And that's when I, like, started throwing up food. Oh, Because it hadn't even occurred to me before that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Such a, 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 such a simple comment in passing,
0: like. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm sure she didn't even realize that, realize like the impact that one sentence made on me. Mm-hmm. But it's such a, we could have an entire podcast about this situation, this question, really. Which, Maybe we will. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of time. And a lot of podcasts to make and not much bike racing to talk about. (laughs) Um, all right, we're going to do two more questions and then we're going to go to rapid fire because we have a ton more, but we are getting close to an hour and we can always do another one again. If you guys like this one, I mean, let us know, um, via Twitter. Um, do you want to answer this question about cycling Australia?
1: I'll give it a go. It was a really good question from a woman in Australia. So from the recent allegations about the silencing culture in CA, in your opinion, how can this impact the ability of athletes to reach their potential? What could be changed? And I think this lead-on question was also um, by your estimate, what's the percentage of Australian women in the CA pool that would be afraid to speak out on the experiences on the retirement process? and HR welfare matters through their time in the system? I think that second part of the question I can answer a lot better because in terms of the silencing culture, I'm not too sure um, at this point in time, but I can definitely speak about my own experience of retirement. Um, It's a tricky one because within the Cycling Australia pool, obviously, so you have the track athletes that – like the track program is just run by cycling Australia. Like they're they're funded by the government um, and thus CA has kind of full control over them in a sense. Like they have a media manager, just like any professional team. Um, So if you want to speak to a rider, you almost have to go through, go through them unless it's just like, you know, if I invited Nettie on the podcast and it wasn't anything too, um, what's the word? Not going to rock the boat. Yeah. Um, then it was fine. But, um, yeah, the retirement process, there really wasn't a process. Uh, for me personally, I decided to quit and that was it. It was kind of like, um, we're going to gift you this bike, which was wonderful. I, I got to keep my race bike. Um, but then that was it. I didn't hear again from anyone at Cycling Australia. I wasn't I wasn't given access to the psychologist. Um, there was no program in place to help me transition out. Um, I'd been part of CA for many years because I'd actually started out as a junior, trying to make it through the under-19s, but walked away um, unbeknown to anyone else from mental health problems. But I came back at a later age, but th- this is definitely a flaw in the system, and I hope now it's changed. I'm sure there's more in place, particularly for the track athletes, because like I said, um, they're more ingrained in cycling culture, uh, cycling Australia, whereas, um, for example, someone who races for for TIBCO or for um, one of the, the foreign teams like Canyon SRAM, they won't have much to do with CA unless they make a world championship team's And basically, unless you're in that funding pool, for example, say if you do go to the World Champs and um, you get some funding because one of your teammates, like Amanda Spratt, won a medal, um, that's the only communication you would have, or at least that was my experience. Like once I was in the funding pool because I was a potential for Rio years and years ago. Um, But as soon as I was Done with the sport and I was out of the system I didn't hear from them again and I think it was pretty common knowledge based on my blogs in 2016 that I did suffer from depression and thus you would think that an athlete like that who's already shed light on their struggles would get extra support um, but there was none of it and I just had to sort of figure my figure it out for myself and just navigate life after sport and there were some close calls and it would have been nice to have had that support and I'm sure it's like this for many sports I've read it is like this for many sports and that's why people like Amber Halliday who was an Olympic rower and then a cyclist are starting programs to help to help athletes yeah and I'm I don't know if it's the same experience for you with Um, you know cycling USA or former teams it's like you know once you're done and it's over it's like people forget about you and not just not just the system but everyone else like all those people who used to reach out to you when they knew you were coming home from Europe because you were racing as a pro do you hear from them anymore no I don't hear a word It's like you become irrelevant and that really doesn't help with the transitioning process because you feel almost used.
0: For sure. And like even uh, teammates who you loved and you thought you were going to be friends with forever. Some of them I am still friends with, but most of them I don't hear from anymore. And if I reach out, it's like, I'm still an outsider. I'm an outsider now. So Mm -hmm. it's like a little bit, and I think also, um, for me and for you, we're part of the media now, which means we have this really weird wall that has to be between us and the athletes, um, which also doesn't help, but it is, it is really, really bizarre to leave the sport and all of a sudden you're, you're on the outside of this world that had been your entire world and nobody cares. (laughs) No. And it's, it's one of those, it's like, and I think, well, I
1: I assume it happens at all levels. It's not like I was a world champion, like Anna Meek from Gluten and constantly in the spotlight, you know, people won't forget her as soon as they do as just say someone who was a decent domestique or someone who won a few French races, um, who would have been loved by their peers. But like you said, once you're out of the picture and that goes for the people you race with, it's just people move on and you, you become irrelevant almost. At least that's how I felt. And, yeah, it's it's really hard. And I can understand why some people get, try to hold on to it and don't want to leave the sport. Um, you see a lot of the men actually transitioning into ds positions or positions on teams because i think it's it's the easiest way to maybe start letting go
0: yeah it's retiring is so weird because there's for one the like usa cycling and cycling australia and stuff they're putting resources into hopefully they're hopefully putting resources into their athletes but once you're not their athlete anymore it doesn't matter Mm mm-hmm and for USA cycling specifically they have a small pool of athletes that they love and they aren't going they don't like to put resources into other other american cyclists who didn't maybe come up in their system or didn't show huge potential from the very very beginning at least that was my experience and i know other people who have had that experience um so retiring like to even think that they would have done anything anything to help me transition into retirement is laughable. Yeah, yeah. Which okay. is really sad. Yeah, it is.
1: And you give so many years of your life to it. And it's it's not the, the years that you were professional in um, inverted commas or whatever you call it, but all those years before, all the years yeah. that you dreamt of becoming a professional athlete, It's that's what people forget about. It was like a 20 year process almost. Um, Whether it's because you started out as a runner and then became a cyclist or you were doing skiing. And then it's like all of a sudden you decide to retire and, and there's a bit of hype around it. You know, the media might write an article. People are reaching out to you and then it dies down. And then all of a sudden you see your Instagram following falling and people aren't liking things as much. And You're not getting as many messages anymore.
0: And you're like, hmm, this is interesting. And then people start introducing you as she used to be a professional cyclist. Yeah. And you're like, well, now (laughs) I have a podcast that's hopefully pretty successful. And (laughs) And a dog. There's a lot more to me. Yeah. And a very cute dog. There's a lot more to me than she used to be a professional cyclist. That just sounds like such a slap in the face.
1: Yeah. It's. It does, well, I sometimes still get introduced that way. But now, like you said, I've been out of it a few years. And the thing is, I live in a country that's not my home country. I've only been living here a couple of years. And people just know me basically as Hannes' girlfriend. <laughs> <That's>
0: <laughs> he, awesome. he was
1: he was the Olympic athlete, not me. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. All right. We've hit an hour almost. And we have so many questions left, which I'm actually really impressed that we were able to get this many questions. And when I was looking at the questions, I was like, oh, yeah, we'll be able to get through that in an hour. But true to you and I, we did go off on some tangents. So I think we're going to have to have a part two. We might even have, I don't know what your time schedule is like. Maybe we'll do a part two for Friday.
1: I am free as a bird because
0: sitting home. So (laughs) because coronavirus.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And there are some really fun questions here that I think people will enjoy the answers to.
0: So let's finish up with the rapid fire because Natalia sent it to us and she is one of my favorite people. So rice or pasta? Rice. No, pasta. 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 Neon or pastel? Pastel. Same. Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman? Captain Marvel. Wonder Woman. Evelyn Stevens' pain face or Taylor Wiles' pain face? Evie Taylor audio or video audio same <laughs> baguette video with no audio yeah <laughs> that's always I like like when you watch sports with no audio and you narrate it yourself that's always fun <laughs> um baguette or sourdough baguette same gravel or trail trail same beer or cocktail mm, cocktail cocktail Same. (laughs) Madonna or Lady Gaga? Gaga. Neither. Can I say neither? Taylor? They're a little. Taylor Swift. Umbrella or raincoat? Raincoat. Yeah, they're so much more freeing. You can jump in things. You can dance. Umbrellas are so cumbersome. (laughs) Unicorn or dragon? Dragon. Same. (laughs) All right. So that was our. First Q&A episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We, I think we should have a second one. We will discuss. We'll see how this one goes when it comes out tomorrow. Tomorrow is Monday. Um, so we'll see how it goes when it comes out. And if we want to do a second one, which I'll just give you guys a little bit of a preview of what the second one would include. From my boss, Wade Wallace, tell me about your first bike race. I feel like many entertaining stories could happen there. Oh, yeah. Um, What are your thoughts on menstrual cups? Do you use them for long rides? That would be a fascinating question to answer, um, especially for our male listeners. (laughs) (laughs) The lockdown has shown that female cyclists are more interesting than male cyclists. Agree or disagree? Also a great question. So these are the questions. This is a small sampling of the questions that we didn't get to that I think that I've decided at this point, we're going to do another episode this week and my bosses at cycling tips can just deal with us having two episodes this week. Um, and yeah, that's what we got. Lauren, thanks so much for doing this with me.
1: No, it's been fun. Some serious questions, but a lot of fun ones. And, um, I think we still got some like pretty in depth ones from next week if I have a look, but, Again, it was a really nice response from, you know, the listeners, the people on Twitter, on Instagram. So if you have any other questions, you have until Thursday to try and shoot them to us and we'll try and slip them in.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah, we've got like really serious questions too that we didn't get to like organize the race calendar for the Women's World Tour. That could be... A lot of these questions could be entire podcasts, actually, which is not a bad idea. Um, I think having an entire episode about retirement and talking to some people who, uh, quote unquote, successfully retired would be really interesting. Mm. So, yeah, thanks so much for listening and we'll be back. Until next time.